Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is a transgender Latter-day Saint, B.J. Nelson. Welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thank you. Um, B.J. is a transgender woman, so I will use she and her pronouns, um, and she will tell her story. Um, B.J. is married to Donna, and they've been married for how many years? 46 years. 46 years. They have four children, 14 grandchildren, and B.J. has felt gender dysphoria for over five decades, 55 years. And I like, I think our joint prayer is that um, since BJ has been walking this road for so long, that his long view of his gender, of her gender dysphoria will be helpful for you. Those of you that experience gender dysphoria and are trying to figure out your way forward, or those of you that are parents or local leaders that are trying to help someone with gender dysphoria find their place in our church and and get the necessary medical help and um, any other help they need in their lives to make their way forward. Is that okay for an introduction, BJ? Sure. Um, and the best way I know to do that and to help people understand is I've always felt that storytelling is the platform of this podcast. So I felt a long time ago that I shouldn't make any assumptions about my transgender friends without without first meeting transgender people. And I really tried to do that. And every um, story is a little different. So I, it's not like I've heard one story, BJ, and I've checked the box. And I understand that whole community. As you know, the, within your community, there's a lot of different stories and a lot of different experiences. And one of the themes of this podcast is write your own story, but it's often helpful to hear other people's stories as you're writing your story. Um, so BJ has been writing her story for 55 years. Um, and I think the things that she shares will be helpful for you and the principles and the insights and the personal revelation that she is receiving. So with that, I'll just turn it over to you to start. Thank you. Uh, I'm really hopeful that I- Things I say, they can be of help to somebody, either my trans brothers and sisters or the parents of amazing, your amazing trans kids who I've come to know as noble and great spirits of our Heavenly Father. And for any others who are trying to figure out how they can help or how they can understand what this human condition is. Um, And like Richard was just saying, if you've heard one person's trans story, you've heard one person's story. Uh, I cannot speak for, nor do I try for all trans people or non-binary individuals. Um, There are many similarities in our stories, but, but we're all different and we're all unique, just as unique and different as all the stories of our cisgender. Uh, members. So where did all this begin for me? Um, this has been difficult to remember. I'm of an age now where it's getting to be really hard to remember my youth. But as far as I can remember, about seven, I uh, remember really enjoying playing with the girls, the neighborhood girls, my my girl cousins. And I don't know exactly what my thoughts were at the time, but I think I probably wanted to be a girl, but didn't know how have any vocabulary to express any of that. And and maybe looking back, it was best I didn't express any of that. 
Um, what's really a mystery to me is uh, not long after realizing that I had these feelings, um, I don't know where this came from, but I, I quickly decided that this was something that was terrible and wrong, and I needed to keep this a secret, um, which became a very motivating and powerful influence in the rest of my life that nobody could ever know this about me, that uh, if this was ever discovered, my life would be over. I would would be too disgusting and horrible for anyone to want anything to do with. Um, and so I retreated into that closet and I was quickly um, joined by a couple other companions of shame and guilt and self-loathing. And, um, and so those, those were huge, heavy loads to carry for a very long time. Um, but those feelings never went away and they never do go away. They just keep coming back and bigger and stronger. But I, I got busy as best as I could to uh, be the best Mormon boy that I could be. That's what we called ourselves in the time at the time. And I, I grew up in Orem. Um, so at about seven, that this would have been 1961, there were no resources, uh, nothing to help me discover who I was or what this was about me. So I was left in the dark about that for a very long time. Um, Orem was, was probably as close to being 100% LDS town as you could ever hope to find. Um, Happy Valley was what it was called because it was so sheltered. So um, even during this time, I really didn't even know anything about the LGBTQ community. Uh, Never met anyone on that spectrum uh, all the way through high school. So um, so it it is kind of a mystery where these feelings kind of originated with me. But um, I stuffed that away. I, I tried to follow all the check all the boxes. I, I uh, didn't make it to an Eagle Scout, but I made it to a, a Life Scout. I earned my duty to God. I was in quorum presidencies all throughout being a youth. I, for years, it seems like I was the only one preparing sacrament at, at church on Sundays. Um, I really tried to do the best that I could and uh, served a mission to Sydney, Australia. Um, came home from that, uh, got married a couple months after getting home. I'll maybe tell some of the backstory a little later in the, as, um, as we go along, but got married a couple months after getting home and set right about having children and, uh, going to school and making a living and, and, uh, serving in just about all the callings within the ward. Uh, I think the only one major one that I didn't uh, serve as was as a bishop, and kind of glad that uh, that I didn't have to be called to that. Although, in in my situation, being the young men's president was was really a hard calling. So, <laughs> but uh, so all all through even these years, I I did not really have a label for myself. I just knew that this problem wouldn't go away no matter how hard I would work at it. 
I don't think the term transgender even came in, even became a word until about 1971, and it didn't uh, find wide usage until the ni- late 1980s. So um, it was it was difficult to really figure out what these feelings were that I felt, and um, and eventually the the cycle would become kind of a six month cycle of where. Um, these feelings would just be overwhelming for about six months at a time. And I would fight that and try and make it go away. And um, eventually after about six months, I could make it go away for for the better part of six months. And then it would come raging back again. Um, and like I say, always bigger and stronger. And, and uh, I did my best to stay in the closet. I, like I said, mentioned earlier, this was something that I would never tell anyone. I would take it to the grave with me. And um, it got to be quite a heavy load. Um, that plan all worked out until it really couldn't work any longer. And uh, my closet started becoming way, way too dark and on- ominous. And uh, um, I'm going to get into more of the details as I kind of back up and and layer into my story the influence that God has taken in my life. Um, But it it got to the point where I either needed to come out or end my life. And at this point in my life, I I knew that um, most people in in my situation um, coming out to their spouse would end a marriage. And I'm married to the most amazing woman I've ever known and person that I've loved for almost a half a century now. And she's loved me even longer. So, um, so that was terrifying coming out to her. So I, I, I think everybody's closet kind of has an expiration date. My expiration date was the, the 12th of April, 2017. Is when I came out to my wife. And a couple of days later, I walked into Encircle in Provo, which had just opened a couple of months before. And uh, that had a huge impact in, um, in saving my life. So I'd kind of like to, to go back now and just, um, I think the story becomes even more interesting as I looked back at it and tried to connect some dots looking back. Um, there's some things that happened in my youth that I, I never could really figure out why or why that that would happen to me. Um, why God seemed to take an interest in my life. So at six years of age, I was my brother and I were exploring the new neighborhood that was being built in the now growing suburbs of Orem. And uh, we were. We got in a rock fight with a neighbor, an older neighbor who was the bully of the neighborhood. And he retreated, retreated into the basement of a new house and took down the ladder and the rock fight continued. So I was the rock thrower hanging out over the hole where the stairs would lead to the basement. There was just the deck on the house and an unfinished um, a floor in the basement. Eventually, I would lean out a little farther and throw a little harder, and I fell uh, approximately 10 feet headfirst, landing on the corner of a brick. 
um, split my my scalp open about seven inches. Um, that didn't kill me. I don't know why. Uh, I know of people who have had less serious accidents and falls where um, that should have cracked my skull open and, and been the end of me at six. Um, I didn't even have a concussion. So that has never made sense why I would survive that. And then moving moving forward six years later, I had just turned 12. Our big um, adventure in scouting that summer was a 100-mile hike in the Ayuendas. And I was just a scrawny little kid, about 75 pounds, according to my fishing licenses of the day. And I had a 50-pound pack. Um, it was a homemade pack, um, solid oak frame, heavy canvas, and uh, weighed almost as much as I did. Um, it started out that morning when I woke up. I think I had my first case ever of bronchitis. And I was really sick, but I wasn't going to stay home. Uh, and so I hid my sickness and went on the trip. And we started off on this hike. Um, it's the only scout trip I've ever been on where a leader did not bring up the rear. I brought up the rear. I was probably a good mile or two behind the rest of the troop, which was okay because I was coughing uh, quite a lot. And um, I know that would have been a major source of concern to everybody. But by the, the big hurdle of the day was Rocky Sea Pass, an 11,300 and something foot high mountain. By the time I got to the top of this mountain, it was raining like I've never seen before. It was going sideways. It was a mix of rain and, and ice. It tore my, my raincoat to shreds. And by the time I got to the top, I was soaking wet. I was freezing. I was sick. And I was done for. There was a stone marker, a pile of rocks at the top of this pass with a with a wooden marker coming out of it, stating where where I was and the elevation, and I sat down on that pile of rocks and I quit. I could go no further. I didn't know what was going to happen to me, how I was going to get off that mountain. I just couldn't go another step. I'd been there a minute or two, and a voice told me to get up and move now. I was probably not well known for obeying and being obedient at the time. But I, I heeded the warning of that voice and got up and started hiking. Got about 10 feet from where I was sitting, and that marker was hit by lightning. Wow. Had I stayed, I'm sure that would have been the end of me. Um, I found new motivation for getting off the mountain. No switchbacks going off the mountain. I went straight down the mountain. That's awesome. But, um, so those, those two events really uh, really didn't make sense especially you know kind of looking back over the years I didn't do anything spectacular with my life um, and then moving a few years further down the road getting ready to go on my mission I was struggling with a little situation with my parents and they demanded that I do one thing and I wanted to do another and this was days before my mission, and I, I was being 
headstrong and wanted to do what I want, wanted. And then I started feeling guilty that I should honor and obey my parents, but I didn't want to. And so I started praying about that. And the personal revelation that came was that I needed, instead of doing what I wanted, I needed to do what God wanted me to do. And that was to buy a diamond ring and get engaged to Donna. Wow. And uh, something I had not even thought about. That was not in the order of chucked boxes that you went through two weeks before you're going on your mission. So that took a second. Same answer to prayer. That's personal revelation came a second time. And, and so I went out and bought a, an engagement ring to Donna and got, we got engaged the night of my farewell. That's awesome. And uh, again, I think God knew the beginning from the end and knew where we would end up and who the perfect spouse would be for me. And I think hopefully I've been the perfect spouse for her as well. So I, I might just add, listeners, I'm not sure I've said this, that Donna's here. Um, often my guests will bring somebody with them, and Donna wanted to be here. and. Um, I've just watched her face a little bit as BJ's been telling her his her story, and Donna's just been smiling, and I can sense the love with this couple, and um, that they've been walking this road together. It's a beautiful love story. Um, so anyway, I'll t and the fact that you got engaged to Donna before your mission, BJ, right. and keep telling your story. So now I want to jump back to 2017. The the backstory of my coming out is um, I knew Encircle was opening their their house just across the street south of the Provo City Center Temple. Uh, I couldn't be there for the grand opening. I wanted to be uh, that morning of April or uh, February 14th. We were we were getting off the airplane in Sydney, Australia. It was my first first time back to the mission field, and we on this trip to acquaint Donna with the amazing place that Australia was. And, but the whole time on this trip, I, I was in a dark space and um, was struggling, got back. And for the next two months, over two months, God would not let me alone and kept bugging me multiple times every day that I needed to go to Encircle. I needed to go to the transgender support group there. And literally, it was multiple times every day. It's just one big problem. What do I tell my wife where I need to go every Friday night for about three hours for the next couple of years? There was no excuse that I could come up with that would make sense. There was no lie that I could tell. There was no way out of this other than straightforward and tell the truth, which was, like you say, terrifying. And uh, eventually, it was what I ended up doing. And I don't remember much about that night. Um, we had a couple hour discussion. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. A lot of tears were shed. Um, didn't know what the outcome was going to be. But uh, we set about working, working through all of this. Um, 
I guess one of the things I, I skipped over that I also wanted to tell was just kind of what um, being transgender and having gender dysphoria feels like before I move on with my story. Um, for me, gender dysphoria was a war between the body that I was born with and what my heart and my, my brain and my spirit told me I was. And sometimes I will ask people, to, women in particular, to imagine waking up tomorrow morning and going and looking in the mirror and everything you see about you is masculine. Maybe you have a short haircut. Maybe you're bald. Maybe you have ear hair. Seriously, where did that come from? What's the purpose of ear hair? Uh, maybe you have a, a, a full beard body hair no no nothing in the mirror saying that you're who you know you you are in your heart and your mind and and your spirit how freaked out would you be and what would you do to try and make that go away so that's that's what the gender dysphoria had felt like to me for all these decades um about the time I came out, I, I started on HRT, hormone replacement therapy, uh, which really just absolutely kicked dysphoria's butt. I, that has mostly gone away. Um, I still have issues sometimes when I look in the mirror. I know I will never look very feminine, or, but... But the world war in my mind is is dissipated, and I've eventually found peace. So, um, kind of. PJ, thank you for just taking us down the road of how you felt and putting words. As I've listened to my transgender friends put words to this experience, it's it's just kind of opened my heart and broke my heart and recognize that for cis people we don't experience any of this and so it's just so hard to understand but when you use the word war um and you and you try to imagine for a woman to be in a male body or for me a man to be in a female body and wake up and look at that you do a good job of just trying to in a very kind way pull us into the road you've been walking and then my heart says, oh, I want to help you <laughs> instead of judge you. I want to find ways to, to, and you did find, and you are finding ways, and I love the, the, the role that hormones played in your life to make the dysphoria go away. And um, that makes me happy, and that you're alive, and that this pain you feel is not completely over, just like you said, but it seems to be manageable. Very. So thank you. Other listener, other guests have talked about being permanently car sick, and I can kind of relate to that. I want to get out of the car when I'm car sick, but I've sort of said, using another trans story of explaining car sickness to somebody in the 14th century. I mean, I can relate to car sickness because I've felt it. But if I went to the 14th century before cars and tried to explain car sickness, I'm, so you've done a good job of trying to explain this. And the word war. I don't think is an exaggeration after I've listened yeah. to so many stories. And this is a long war. 
with no light at the end of the tunnel for a long time. And I accept that you felt um, the darkness of the box, to use some of your language, the closet was, was closing. And it was probably closing to either, sounds like either coming out of the closet or your life ending. Yeah, definitely was. And, and again, there's God playing a role in saving my life. I want to also mention up till this point of coming out, I was always too filled with shame and self-loathing to even talk to God about this. In some ways, I'm grateful that I didn't spend a lifetime trying to pray this away. I think that might have hastened my demise to have prayed for 55 years for this to be taken away, and it wouldn't have been. Um, I think it, that might have been more than I could have handled. So, But we've had a lot of good talks since, um, and he has continued to help me. Um, I might also add that after coming out, I, I made a promise to Donna that I would not socially transition until I um, got to another point that I'd heard many transgender people talk about of um, needing to socially transition or, again, end your life, either living authentically or, or not living anymore. So I, I made that promise. Um, I've I had a therapist that thought I was crazy and wondered why I would walk right up to that edge before trying to move away from it. But uh, it, it made sense to me. And um, so it's set forward to, um, well, I guess the other thing is, is from that kind of moment on, God impressed upon me that I needed to hear other people's stories. And so he didn't just leave it there. He would prompt me of where I would need needed to go and whose stories I needed to hear, whether it was in-person meetings at Encircle or the Utah Hearth or other events. And also when I would get there, he would point out to me who I needed to talk to. And that's how I first met you, Richard, it's at one of those meetings. And I remember that. One of those promptings. And so God took an active role in being my, my guide in, in this journey at that point on. And it's, um, it's been quite amazing. Um, And all those feelings that I had while I was in the closet of being, having that shame and guilt and, and overwhelming fear and, and self-loathing has, has gone away. Uh, other than there, there's still some fears that I think are healthy fears that a trans person needs to have. I think you need to be careful going out into public and being situationally aware. Um, so not all the fears are going going to go away, but but the big ones really have. And Heavenly Father has helped me to learn to love myself. And 
to be free of those burdens of shame and fear and guilt and self-loathing. It's just, yeah, it's just amazing to be at that, that point in my life. So I, I got busy trying to uh, navigate this journey. It felt like I was driving a car with both feet on the pedals, one foot on the gas pedal and one foot on the brakes. And which one's going to end up wearing out first, the, the brakes or the, or the engine. And uh, it became, uh, like I've heard others talk about it, especially uh, Anne and Bridget Pack, uh, you know, negotiating what's acceptable and not, uh, or earrings acceptable and when, and painting fingernails acceptable and when, and uh, just a lot of, a lot of little little things like that, and a lot of negotiating, and sometimes messing up and jumping the gun, and um, and being allowed to to dress to certain events that were going to be safe, and making that more normal. And um, so it's it's been an interesting four and a half years, um, and a lot of coming outs. And coming outs are never easy at all. Uh, every time you come out, especially to a family member, it's it feels like you're on trial. You're asking someone to accept who you are and and still be part of your life, and you're begging for that. And wow! At the end of that conversation, there will be a judgment made, and you're either in or you're out. Wow! And uh, I think a, a trans person that is contemplating coming out has to realize that losses may be incurred and you need to be okay with that uh, they will hurt but if someone can't accept who you are you need to need to try and work through that and be okay with that and hopefully live a life that um, they eventually want to be a part of so um hard things hard things that we go through um I want to move forward in my in this um, story to September of a year ago. Um, I was having what I thought was was a faith crisis and going deep down that rabbit hole. I was getting ready to go to lunch with a friend to discuss this, and in the middle of getting ready, I was stopped in my tracks and God told me that this wasn't about my faith. This is about my gender. This is the time that I talked about and made a promise to Donna that I would not um, socially transition until my life was in jeopardy. And God warned me that I was getting to that point and warned me that if I needed to follow his advice and and uh, socially transition or the consequences would be dire that were those were the words he used and then he went on to say i i answered um well just to back up just a little bit one of the things i'd heard in all these stories is how people had received their personal revelations and and so i'd been praying for that personal revelation for three and a half years and here it was 
that I answered that question for you before you even asked it. When I insisted that you go to Encircle, of course I loved you and I saved your life yet again. I opened the doors to the rest of your journey. And yes, I created you this way. And I have needed you to be here, to live visibly, and that you're perfectly created and you're loved. So I've continued to, he's continued to ask me to stay in the church and be visible, which I've tried to do. Uh, my word has been really good with me, which I really appreciate. I do attend Relief Society. I we'd, uh, made arrangements with my stake president a couple years ago to start attending Relief Society. Um, the first Sunday I was supposed to attend was the Sunday that the church closed for COVID-19. So I have another friend that was in the exact situation, same situation. So we joke, joked that we, we kind of killed the church there for a while. <laughs> but, um, so it's, it's been an interesting, interesting journey. And, and as I've tried to follow what God has wanted me to do, I've, I've come to realize that this was the plan that God had for me all along. I was created this way, and he wanted me to be alive, to be here today, uh, to try and help other people. And that's what I continue to try and do. I'm actively involved at Encircle. I meet several times a week with parent groups of with parents of LGBTQ kids. And we have a lot of great and wonderful conversations trying to help them figure out how to keep their kids alive, how to help them to thrive and live their best lives. And uh, that's very re rewarding work for me to do. I feel very fulfilled in doing that and really grateful to be in that position to be able to do that. Um, it's just been a lot of other amazing things that have happened, especially in this last year as, as I've struggled to stay in the church and be visible. It seems like God always presents me with something, some task, some person that I need to meet, something that I need to do. And, uh, and I'm and I'm glad it's um, I'm glad I can see the reasons why he needs me to stay and wants me to be visible. I ended up sharing my story in in three institute classes at UVU and giving uh, trans 101 lectures on UVU campus in five different uh, five different classes, um, and that's all just been this fall. I've uh, had parents in the ward who have expressed to me how important it is that I come to church the way I do in a dress or a skirt that, and how appreciated that is because there are kids in my ward that 
are struggling with their gender and who they are, and they need to see that. And uh, it's uh, come to realize that in those 55 years in the closet fighting against this, I was actually fighting against God and what his plan was for me. That um, this is what he's needed me to, to do, and I'm, I'm glad I finally caught up and got on the same page as him. And uh, he's been good to me, and I will continue to try and do the things that he asked me to do. And I think I've skipped through a whole bunch of this stuff on my outline, but I was asked to keep it shorter, so... <laughs> Well, on behalf of our listeners, BJ, thank you for sharing some of your story. And we'll circle back to your story. This is a beautiful story. Um, just an impression that God loves you. He loves all of you. And that your courage to be authentic is, is part of your plan. And your visibility is helping so many people. And I, when somebody asked... <clears throat> The thought came to my mind that, you know, if someone's going to believe you, they should probably ask God first. If they're not going to believe you, how God feels about you. And uh, that might help them to feel better about your story. I, I recognize you kind of painted a pretty good picture of when you're vulnerable and you come out, you realize you may lose that person. And I hope listeners, before we step away from somebody as they're honest with their story, that we ask God how, they, how God feels about that person before we make a judgment or do we decide it's the right thing for us to step away? I will uh, often ask people to do that very thing because I, I, I know God is very willing to answer that prayer and, and, and give people their personal revelations on, on these issues. And um, that changes everything if you know, know how God feels. Why is going to Release Society important to you? It's where I feel at home. Um, if I'm a woman, that's the right meaning for me to be at. And honestly, uh, from my ser time serving in bishoprics, I always enjoyed Relief Society and Young Women's way more than any of the priesthood meetings. There's a spirit there that's it's not to be had in priesthood meetings. And it just feels right, and I'm at home there. What are the best things Release Society sisters are doing for you in Release Society? Or what are the best things that brothers are doing to support you in Release Society? Um, first off, I, I, I'm being allowed to be there, and that doesn't always happen. I have many friends who are not allowed to attend the, the, the meetings, even though the handbook um, says that we're to be allowed. Um, the hardest thing for me is in the handbook of instructions, it talks about that um, you can't be a distraction. And if you're a distraction, you'll be asked to leave. And I read that to be permanently. Um, so that's a place where I still do not feel comfortable commenting and making comments. Um, I don't want to be asked to leave. I don't want to be a distraction. So I often 
bite my lip and filter. Not even filter. I just don't make comments. Especially, and then there's lessons and times where I think I could have added to the lesson, but I, I just don't want to mess things up for me. It's important for me to be there, and I want to be there. That's really honest. Um, I recognize you're muted. You're there, and it's healing and helpful and where you want to be and um, connecting with your fellow sisters, but I recognize that you're guarded and muted. And um, I recognize there has been a change in the handbook that you're allowed to go there if you're not a distraction, but that's an interesting word and can be interpreted very differently. And I sense you're pretty careful not to be a distraction. And I hope that we can evolve to the point where we need your voice in really society and the insights and the perspective and your life experience to help your fellow sisters um, accomplish the things that really society is trying to accomplish. And that would be, to me, that listeners, that doesn't change your doctrine or it's not, it's just a way of make. I think a lot about the boat being bigger and what we can do to help you know, people feel like they belong in the boat. And some of my LGBTQ listeners say, I don't have a crisis of faith. I have a crisis of belonging sometimes that I really feel like I belong to my congregation. And it sounds like you're feeling some of that belonging just by being in Relief Society. I I definitely feel a sense of belonging in my ward. Like I say, they've been good to me and I really appreciated that. Um. If I can just be honest, where where I don't feel welcome is with the church as a whole. Um, First off, I don't exist within the church. There's only the binary. There's only male and female. So transgender doesn't exist. Um, But the general authorities will very quietly say yes, but intersex people do exist, but they're so rare we won't worry about it. So here um, they're admitting there's basically about 150 million people in the world who have intersex conditions who have you cannot um, argue that they were born that way and created by God that way. So right there, they're, they're arguing against their own argument. So there is more than just the binary. Um, and then there have been some very hurtful comments of the last couple of years about transgender being of the devil and a devilish design. And, and so it's ultimately hard to be the place where um, you don't exist and the church really doesn't seem to even want you to be there. Um, it's more like how we feel sometimes in families. We'll tolerate you. You can be in the room, but sit in the corner. We don't want to know anything about you. Don't rock that boat. Don't say anything. Don't make us uncomfortable. And, and that's, um, that's very harmful, very damaging to people. And it's hard to be in those kind of spaces. Again, I appreciate the ward members for trying to help me to feel more welcome. Thanks for being honest. I sense your sincerity and tremendous woundedness that you've felt. And as you've gone 
and heard other transgender stories. I assume you've heard incredibly wounding and sad and difficult stories, and it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And your analogy to sit in this with the family situations, you're good at sort of painting an analogy that builds builds more empathy. Um, yeah, I just sit, listeners, when someone tells me a difficult ch- church experience, I just sit with them in that pain and validate it. <laughs> it doesn't cost me my belief in the church or my support of the leaders. I can sort of do both. Um, that's me being non-binary, I guess, or it's sort of a trade-off. I, <laughs> I don't know if that's a good analogy to do, but just that's, so I just sit with BJ in, in her pain as she walks a really difficult road and recognize that there's been painful experiences that have come into your life. Some would say, then, why do you stay in the church? Because and you've he kind of answered to. that. Yeah. But, he wants me to be visible and he want, needs me to be there. But I would, I would just also say something that I would like to, would love to see us do better as a church is to keep those two great commandments that the Savior gave us when he walked the earth. First, to love God. And if we're not loving his children, all his children, like is stated in the the second great commandment, we really can't be loving God either. And when the Savior told us to love everyone, he didn't give us a list of people not to love. He said everyone, and he commanded us that we also love ourselves. And... uh, he certainly helped me to come to a point where I could love myself. And I'm deeply grateful for that. And I would guess one of your gifts that's a little muted right now, but not in every circle, is your ability to give hope to other people and help other people believe that God loves them too. Mm-hmm. And that's a great gift that I know you're giving <laughs> to people is the yeah. gift of hope and the gift that God loves you because you know this road personally. And I assume your work at Encircle and in other circles that doesn't really show up in an official church calling is doing God's will to save his children. So officially, um, restrictions do apply to trans people. So um, I'm restricted from using my priesthood. I'm restricted from uh, going to the temple. I'm restricted from having callings. And... Those don't send a great message either. I don't know what sin I've committed. Um, but I will definitely serve with in my community to help uh, further uh, help queer, queer people and to help parents to um, be able to love and accept their kids. And... Uh, even if it means they need to step away from the church to be able to do it. There's, um, depending on how wards act, church can be a very harmful place to our queer youth. And we're having record numbers of LGBTQ people stepping away from the church. And now it's also their parents and siblings and sometimes their friends. Uh, over 80% of our or we're uh, members of the Church of Love. Talk about list. Uh, you, uh, you know, you've got a lot of experience in the space. Obviously, maybe as much experience as anybody I've ever met. 
talk to parents or even grandparents that are dealing with a non-binary trans youth somewhere in the high school, junior high, and they're one side of their brain saying this is a phase and society has confused them. The other side of their brain saying is this is like a real thing and what do I do? And it's just complex. And I know you've had hundreds of these conversations. So talk to those parents, even grandparents that are trying to do the best to support that age group in particular. The most important thing we can do for these kids is to believe them. Um, just one supporting adult in their life greatly improves their chances for living. It lowers their suicide rates by over 40%. Imagine what a handful of people in our children's lives can do if just one helps them that much. So believe who they are. Do everything you can to love and support them. As we talked about, ask your heavenly parents about your your loved one. Were they created this way? How does he feel about them? Um, error on the side of love. I love that. I'm just trying to think of the questions you might get that listeners are saying right now. Well, what if they said, well, if I believe them, it's more likely that this sticks with them because I'm privately hoping it's a phase. And if I believe them and love them and affirm them, then this phase that I think this is will be more likely to stick and I've got myself in a worse situation. I'm articulating I, that poorly, I, but you I, can answer it better. I, I would than just I say poppycock. Um, <laughs> if they are who they say they are, they are, um, they're not going to change their mind. And, and what you say or do good or bad against that is not going to change their mind. It's not going to influence them. I, I can't make someone be transgender. Um, gay people can't make straight people homosexual um, and vice versa. You know, all the electroshock therapy, all the conversion therapies, all the things that we've tried to do to people hasn't made any of us straight or, or cisgender. So believe our kids. They're the ones that are experiencing it. Um, most kids, if they're diagnosed with gender dysphoria, are not going to are not going to desist, change their mind. Less than two percent change their minds. Talk about the process to being diagnosed with gender dysphoria. So talk through the kind of how you get to that point. Um, there is a consensus among mental health professionals and doctors and endocrinologists throughout the world um, in what's called WPATH. It's, it's a professional organization that determines um, the rules, um, safeguards, uh, the best, best paths forward for transgender people. And there are standards of care that um, they have proven to be effective proven to save lives and proven to be helpful. And there is a questionnaire, basically a list of questions. Depending on the answers, that's where the diagnosis will will come from. Is, is, um, I, I, I forget the DSM-5, 
I think is the, anyway, um, I fail at being able to describe this properly, but there is, there are very well thought out standards of care for, for transgender people that, um, this is what we need to be following and listening to not, not our hateful, uh, hate groups that are trying to ban and make life as difficult as they can for our transgender kids. This is what the the legislatures around the country are listening to. And uh, the thing, the laws they're trying to pass are things that will actually kill our kids, not save them. Uh So we're, we're, we're not going to, we're not going to influence the kids uh, to be more transgender or less transgender by what we say. Talk about, um, I get a lot of requests for thoughtful LDS parents that recognize they've got a kid that's feeling gender dysphoria and they want to do the right thing. You're helping them and they're believing them. So they're kind of past, they're to the stage where they're believing this is real and I want to do the right thing. Talk about, and often they want a therapist. Talk about any principles or you could recommend therapists just to get get an LDS parent to the right type of therapist for their, I'm still in the high school, junior high age kid. Yeah. What, what best steps forward is, is for a parent to, to first off, believe and love and accept their kid um, and start working towards putting together a team that can help uh, this child to, to survive and thrive. And that um, would be a team of, uh, a mental health professional, maybe an endocrinologist and a doctor as well. And, and the parents need to be on board. Um, and so if you have a team that continues to assess and, and look at this child and help them, what they're going to be looking for is insistence, persistence, and consistent in who they say that they are. And Will you uh, say those three words again? Insistence, persistence, and consistent. Um, and that's that's what they're looking for. Not somebody. If there's a wishy-washy and changing every other day, not to be confused to with um, trying out different terms and and things. It first off, it's it's really hard to figure out who you are um, if you're not cisgender. Um, if you haven't always known from the time of birth that you're body and your your mind match up um so oftentimes kids will come out as gay first uh, and then maybe non-binary and then then maybe trans but um this this is not being wishy-washy this is exploring and and trying on terms until they find something that that fits and it's also based on fear you know what's going to be my least painful most likely to succeed path forward well if i if i tell my parents that i'm asexual or um i'm bisexual you know that gives them some hope (laughs) Uh, as they get used to that maybe i can throw on some other things down the road but um What what your team is going to be looking for is just the insistence and consistent and persistent that that there is something going on there and it's it's 
The only thing that's changing is maybe the verbiage, the definition. That's very helpful. Is there a time, like, is there, in each situation, is it different or will they look for a certain time for these, this persistence before looking at possible transition options? Um, I'm not really sure if, if there's, there's a time, but I, I know there's um, very well thought out um, um, gatekeeping things to keep, especially kids, from making mistakes. Um, so they're going to have to demonstrate some of this over a period of time. Um, younger kids before puberty will, would be allowed to express their, their genders, who they feel they are. That would be the only thing available to them at the time of, of uh, around puberty. Ideally, you, you, if this continues to be persistent and consistent, then allowing a child to uh, be on puberty blockers to stop the wrong puberty from happening also gives them more time to for everyone to be in agreement and know that they are who they say they are and to continue to figure things out two or three years down that road, then it may make sense as they continue to express this uh, hormone replacement therapy might be prescribed. Generally, there are no real surgeries that are going on with, with uh, kids under the age of 18, and that's another big boogeyman that people are being scared about as we're that a 13-year-old kid can walk into a doctor's office and come out with different body parts or whatever. So that's just not happening. I recognize that this issue creates a lot of fear, and I think education and hearing stories is helps to reduce the fear and helps people make fact-based decisions versus fear-based decisions. And as a parent, we don't have any trans kids, but I think the principles you're teaching for parents that do it's it's fact-based and it's very helpful and talk if you want to recommend if there's listeners in utah or or even out of utah that want to connect with utah resources there you mentioned in circle are there other places you'd encourage parents to connect with specifically maybe for therapists uh with therapists there are good therapists at the in circle homes um um they're generally overworked Probably most of our therapists are these days. Uh, Flourish Therapy out of Orem has uh, an amazing team of um, well-educated, um, LGBTQ-friendly and knowledgeable therapists. Also, uh, Lacey Bagley with uh, Celebrate Therapy just opened a new practice in, in Provo. Um, and she's awesome as well. Um, but I, I would just tell parents to love and support their kid, help them through this, and watch them start to come to life and to thrive. Um, start to come out of their shells. Uh, there's still going to be lots of issues to contend with. There's going to be depressions and anxieties and, and things that hopefully a good therapist can help with. But overall, I think the, the general thing that you're going to notice is, is seeing your kid, the light come back on in their eyes and, uh, and help them to gain that light and to be able to, to figure out who they really are and to, and to be able to thrive and 
and do something with their life. It doesn't doesn't mean their lives are over. You're you're um, the eternities are not messed up because your your kid is LGBT or especially T. So especially um, your life will be blessed as you as you learn to love your your children the way our heavenly parents love them. If I had a red button around our round table, this is a round table listeners in our front room. It's a temporary table. It's been here about two or three years now. Um, it's just a card table that we put a cloth over. <laughs> but anyway, if we did put a button on it that worked with the big cisgender on it and you could push it, would you push it? I would not. And Why? That's, that's been an interesting change. So not only has is, is God helped me to learn to love myself, but over the last few months, I've come to realize that this has actually been a blessing in my life. And as hard as it's been, and as much of a struggle as it's been, I, I wouldn't undo that. Tell us more why. Why it's a blessing. It's It's what God's plan has always been for me. It's um, why would I go after all the struggle to be where I am today? Why would I fight against God and how he's created me? Uh, He's blessed me. He's been on this journey with me every step of the way. Uh, He's been a good fellow traveler with me. It's a great answer, BJ. Love your heart. Love your life story. Um, I think, listeners, I we were in church today talking about Matthew 25, done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. And I've thought a little about that scripture, and you could comment on this. Sometimes I think, well, society has put transgender people kind of on the least of these, but I don't think God has. And I don't think I should look at my transgender friends as the least of these. Uh, but sometimes how we treat people that society has put in that box is a sign of our discipleship. Um, so I don't look at you as the least of these, but I recognize you've been treated like that. And the other thing I think about is Paul in Corinthians 12, where he talks about all parts of the body are needed and equal. And I've listeners, I've sort of thought my job is to kind of help LGBTQ people, um, but they've rescued me. They've taught me things about the gospel of Jesus Christ, about God's love for every one of their children, about how to reach out to the marginalized, how to hear stories, how to create belonging, how to work through faith crises. So I, I need trans people in my life. Um, they don't exist just for straight people to be better. I don't want to, but the point is, is I think of BJ in Relief Society, and I recognize it's the reality of church right now that you're guarded and you're not fully contributing. And I look, I yearn for the day when your voice is actually sought after in our faith communities because of the insights, the perspective the, um, to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to create a feeling of belonging for all of God's children that you authentically know this is not theoretical for you, BJ. Um, this isn't an academic experience that you've learned in a class. This is real. That's why I love that you've been invited to speak at, I think you said, the Institute at UVU. So that's an LDS Institute that is wanting to hear your story. And 
as well as the academic classes at UBU. And, and to me, that makes me hopeful for the future and that there's really thoughtful people that are recognizing this is a real thing um, and we want to create Zion here. Zion, to me, is where your voice is fully contributing, BJ, um, because we need your voice to create Zion, the things that you and all my trans friends and all my LGBTQ friends can can contribute. So that's kind of my vision, the future listeners. Amen. <laughs> and then obviously, if you're younger people and you're seeing the contributions of LGBTQ in your congregations, I don't think like you just said, it doesn't confuse you into being LGBTQ if you're straight or cis, but it just may give you the feeling there's a place for me here and uh, not go through all the shame and self-loathing that you went through that you know so well that you'd love to spare, and you are sparing younger people with your work at Encircle and talking about your story. So I'm just moved by you and your good wife that's here with you and the love story this is that's different than it was you thought it would be. It's a beautiful love story. Who gets engaged? Um, I think you said the night you got set apart. You're off to Sydney, Australia. We've had a son serve in Sydney, Australia. We, my wife and I did go back, so I'm thinking of you and your wife going to Australia. Um, anyway, but it's a beautiful love story. And I, if I've called you he at any time in this podcast, I apologize. <laughs> um, you make, you're a beautiful woman and a beautiful contributor to our faith community. Um, I just have a wonderful heart and spirit, BJ. And Anything else you'd like to add or anything that I've said you'd like to kind of move in a little different direction that I said? The only thing I think I would also add is that as members of the church, can we just get beyond I love you, but? Why? Because anything you say after the but negates the love. I love you, but I don't agree with what you're doing. I. I love you, but I hate your sin. I, all those come across as judgmental, anything but loving. Uh, we just need to love. We just need to keep that second commandment. We've also been commanded not to judge. So let's get out of that business. I think we offend God when we, when we try and usurp his, his role. Um. I can't say that any better than you said it. I I did put a story on Instagram today um, just about creating a bigger boat, so to speak, in mm -hmm. our congregation. and um, Maybe a bigger table might even be a better analogy. I like table because Christ invited everybody to his table that everybody else thought he shouldn't be inviting to his table. Right. Table fellowship. So I think about the visual imagery of I think he took Zacchaeus that was up in the tree, the tax collector that everybody thought he shouldn't be hanging with. And I think he invited him to dinner that night. Um, so there's something about the table that's perhaps bigger than the boat. Um, anyway, I'm not sure I could find this post, but it's basically the idea, um, listeners, that to create a bigger table, I've always, um, the gate is wide at the congregation level. There is no belief or behavior hurdle. The gate narrows for the temple where there is a belief and behavior hurdle. And that may be a little triggering for you in your situation because to your point, you haven't 
you're the gate, you're out of, well, I just recognize what you said and you can probably answer all the temple recommend questions, but at this point you're not allowed to go to the temple. But anyway, let's not move the narrowing of the gate into the culture of our congregation, causing some to feel that you don't measure up, are not welcome or belong. So that may be helpful discussion or not, given BJ's situation. I don't want to make that complex, but I just think, to your point, there shouldn't be a not or a but at the congregation level. I think Elder Uchtdorf said that when there says there's no sign at the door that says your testimony should be this high to enter. I think he taught a principle that the congregation should be safe. And I think your ward, as you've been sharing, is mostly safe for you. Mm-hmm. And I think that we have work. And so we can all look inward and see what can I do to create a bigger table. So I will leave you with the final word now, BJ. I won't jump in after you give some final thoughts. I, that, that's it. Okay. Um, BJ Nelson, thank you for being on the podcast. We'll link to BJ's um, Facebook so you can find BJ on Facebook. We'll link to that when we share the podcast so you can connect with BJ. So this is Richard Osler and my friend BJ Nelson signing up from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.